Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the future of the Second Amendment. And Richard, we return to this topic, which we talked about a few weeks ago, not only because we've seen this wave of anti-gun agitation in the wake of the Parkland shootings, but also because John Paul Stevens, the former Supreme Court justice, who our listeners will remember was a Republican appointee to the court, but always on the liberal block, published a piece in the New York Times earlier this week calling for the repeal of the Second Amendment. So let's just take this piece by piece, Richard. First off, the historical argument that he's making. Uh, Justice Stevens writes in this piece, concern that a national standing army might pose a threat to the security of the separate states led to the adoption of the Second Amendment, writes later in the same paragraph, today that concern is a relic of the 18th century. So Richard, this is Justice Stevens saying that the Second Amendment might as well be the Third Amendment. It's responsive to a concern of its time that is no longer particularly operative. Is he reading the history correctly there, and does he have the implications right? Well, the Third Amendment, of course, for those who don't remember, is about quartering soldiers in homes without compensation, um, and it has never been construed and never been used. Um, I have very mixed emotions about all this. First of all, I always thought that Justice Stevens' opinion in Heller, his dissent from the uh, very well-known decision by Justice Scalia, was correct. Um, in terms of what it said. But I don't think it has to do with anything about relics whatsoever. I think it has to do with the question of how it is that you read this particular amendment. And the usual argument on favor of the broad interpretation says that when you look at the last half of that clause, which talks about the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, uh, one says that it's an individual right, um, and it's not just a collective right, and so therefore people have that. Uh, the question, however, relates to the first clause with its uh, famous passive clause, which says, you know, a well-regulated militia being essential to the security of a free state. Uh, and they don't tell us uh, basically who the right runs against. And so here are a couple of considerations that I think are relevant. First of all, if you go back to contemporary decisions in the early period, generally it was understood that the Second Amendment did not apply to the states, or the Bill of Rights did not apply to the states, it only applied to the federal government. That was implicit in the First Amendment where they had the word Congress, and in a case called Barron in Baltimore decided in around 1833 or so, it was held that the takings clause, as of that time, did not apply as a guarantee to individual rights um, against these uh, states. It only applied against the federal government, and the states could take care of their own. Uh, then when you start looking further, it turns out that the militia that they're talking to is an issue which does raises not only in connection with the Second Amendment, but it ties back to Article One, where there is a very elaborate division of authority over the state militias between the state and the federal government. And what that provision essentially says is that the states are in charge of keeping their own militias. These are called the National Guards today. The National Guard is not a relic, and that to the extent that they're engaged in local activities, they're under the command of their own generals, colonels, and so forth. And I think it would be rather odd to say that somehow or other this arrangement is crazy. And to the extent that they're doing their own thing, uh, they are free of supervision from the federal government. 
But there are also other provisions in Article 1 and Article 2 which talk about how the militia can be called up into federal service. And those are limited grounds. They have to do with disunion, insurrection, rebellion, and so forth. And under those particular cases, the president can call them up if given an authorization to do so by the Congress. So there's a big system of checks and balances. So even though I think it's correct to say that the Second Amendment is an individual right, I think that Justice Stevens is correct to say that it's an individual rights of citizens of the state only against the federal government in line with the general structure of the Bill of Rights at that time. Heller, you recall, is a decision that arises out of the District of Columbia. There is no federal and state relationships there. It is akin to a territory of the United States, specially created for a very important purpose. So as far as I can see, uh, since there's no state militia coming out of the District of Columbia, it is simply a question of direct federal rule. And over the territories of the United States, um, um, the second they have plenary power, it's stated in the Territories Clause, and so I just don't think that the um, Second Amendment applies to Heller. The second case in this series, McDonald, has to do with whether or not you incorporate the Second Amendment so as bind the states for it, and that's completely odd historically, because the whole purpose of this amendment was to protect the state's power to keep off the federal government and to protect individuals in the state from the federal government. It doesn't have anything to do uh, with the way in which the state regulates its own citizens. And so my own reading of this is that the states then can do pretty much what they want unless there's some independent constitutional limitations. The federal government can do pretty much what it wants in the District of Columbia. And the Second Amendment only applies to federal regulation of what goes on in the states. And that, of course, is exactly the opposite of what of Heller held. So I've been pretty consistently of the view that Justice Stevens' historiography was more or less correct. And I recognize that most people have more conservative inclinations go the other way. But one little subtle hint that I'm right on this interpretation is if you look in the lobby of the National Rifle Association, they quote the second half of the Second Amendment and have three dots before the first. So they don't talk about the well-regulated militia. It just disappears. And that's what Justice Scalia did. And there's a rule of statutory or constitutional interpretation. You have to make every word count. And if you leave that as surplusage, you're doing something wrong. So how about the proposed remedy here? Because Stevens' reasoning is, in essence, that the rulings in Heller and MacDonald are so destructive that it's preferable to live in a country with no Second Amendment as opposed to one where it's over-interpreted. What's your response to that? Well, I don't think you have to do that. I think he's right, and I would certainly vote to overrule Heller. I think it's wrong, and I would vote to overrule McDonald, leaving open the question in McDonald, the second case, as to whether or not the privileges or immunities clause of the 14th Amendment somehow or other incorporates a gun right, for which I think the better reading is probably it did not, although that's a closer case. So I'm with him on that. Uh, But the question is, okay, so you now get rid of all this stuff. Uh, What's going to happen. You can regulate, and and where Justice Stevens strikes me as being incredibly naive is his underappreciation of the difficulty of regulation. So I'm in this odd position of agreeing with him on the constitutional law, but being quite pessimistic about the ability to have remedies that are going to make a dent in the gun rate above and beyond what we've done. And let me just start with one point, and then you could quiz me about others. Certainly, any tragedy of this sort is, is beyond comprehension. But if you look at the grand sweep of things, 
over the last 30 years or so, essentially the homicide rate in the United States has gone down by about 50%. Suicides still are very large. The number of guns in use in the United States has gone up. Uh, so higher gun use does not translate into higher death rates. It's also the case if you start looking at killings, Guns constitute about 60 or 65% of the total. And if you call the recent situation, the guy in Austin, Texas, was using package bombs of one form or another. Uh, the great disaster at Oklahoma City was done by exploding fertilizer outside of the building. Uh, knifing knifing and, and strong-arm robberies are an important part of the situation. And suicides, by all sorts of means, probably result in more fatalities than gunshot. And so it's not at all clear that when you're looking at the situation, A, the situation has gotten worse, or B, that his particular proposals are going to make any kind of serious dent in what we have. So that is the case if we kind of indulge the parallel reality that Justice Stevens wants to live in. But Richard, Justice Scalia, when he wrote the decision in Heller, stipulated in there that a right to keep and bear arms wouldn't be unlimited, that there would be room for regulation in there. So let me ask you this. Are there any policy responses to the concern over gun violence that, in your judgment, would be able to meet the dual criteria of, A, actually doing something about the problem, and B, withstanding judicial scrutiny in light of those two recent decisions on the Second Amendment? Well, I think there is, but it's the one for which, ironically, there is the most resistance. And it's one for which I think one has to tread very carefully. So um, I think if you try and regulate the sale of guns, uh, this is a losing battle because the illegal transfers of guns, given the fact that there are over 300 million of them in circulation, are the dominant ways in which criminals acquire them. So uh, the NRA has a point uh, that if you actually figure out the number of its members who have received weapons that have been trained by them, who have committed felonies or suicides or murders, that number is vanishingly small, approaching zero. Um, it's often people who are sort of renegades and outside the scope of society. And so then if you start looking at this guy, Cruz, who's the psychopath who was sitting in Parkland and so forth, the chances are he could have gotten one or two or three guns from God knows how many sources. And so it seems to me that prohibiting the sale of guns to all people under 21 is going to have precious little effect on what's going on. You can go after the bump stocks, I suppose, um, because they allow for greater repetition, but very few killings are done by sort of rapid repeating assault weapons. And in fact, if you put limitations on them, two things happen. One, people who want to use them take guns that aren't rapid repeat and they alter them in one fashion or another, or people come with two or three guns with two or three ammunition clasps and so forth, and so you gain a half a second or a second. It doesn't change it. Putting people on the ground who know what they're doing is probably the best solution because you don't have to guess as to who's going to get this gun. And then you'll start looking at Parkland, and they had somebody there who was a police officer of sorts, and he fell asleep on the job. So, again, you can't be wildly optimistic. What they do in Israel is every person in the military and every person in the police is supposed to carry their weapons when they're off duty. And these are trained individuals who know what to do with firearms, and they do it because the threat there of Arab terrorism and God knows what else could happen is sufficiently severe, and it seems to work. And that's always been my preferred solution, not hiring a guard who doesn't know what he's doing, but having people have these weapons who are expert at using them and relatively concealed. Is this a no-risk proposition? No, it's not, uh, because you could get somebody like this who fires at somebody who's a criminal, misses, shoots some innocent person, and so forth. But if you're doing it from the point of view of probability, 
there was a study done many years ago by my colleague Bill Landis and John Lott, who, of course, a very controversial figure, which seemed to indicate where you had shall-issue rules, that is, people allowed to carry guns, you had fewer mass killings, because every time you walk into that cafeteria, there may be somebody there who can shoot back at you, and that's going to reduce your willingness to do it. And the moment the first bullet is fired, it may well reduce your willingness to continue. Is this true? Well, it's been stoutly denied by other individuals. Seems to me that it makes sense as a theoretical matter. The evidence seems to be tolerably good, but there's no willingness to do this. So what people want to do is to stop the sale of guns. They don't want to control the criminal. Uh, the other thing you could do is have more incarceration. Cruz was, you know, was, was known to be a crazy and a loony, and nobody wanted to put him away. Civil commitment used to be quite common in the United States, and then starting in the 60s or the 70s, uh, we began to cut way back on that stuff, and perhaps we've gone a little bit too far. Uh, so if he wants to use age restrictions and bump stock restrictions, the things he talks about, my guess is that those will have at most a negligible effect on crime and that the really important things that I'm talking about have no Second Amendment complications whatsoever. Allowing people who know how to use ones to keep and bear them in a school system is not a Second Amendment violation. Um, so I essentially think that what's happened with the Parkland situation is that people focus oh so much on the ends, which everybody agrees on, and they don't spend enough time talking about the means where it seems to me there's much more reason to doubt that the students, any more than uh, Justice, uh, Justice Stevens, has a coherent regimen that he could part to put forward. It's a very hard problem to control. We've done pretty well already because, remember, the rates are overall down, and the kind of rule is the lower they get, the harder it is to get them lower. Are we going to be able to get down to the level that you have in other countries? Hard to say. Is that because they all have very, very few arms? Well, Switzerland has almost no criminal activity whatsoever, and everybody there is armed to the teeth. It's, it is real. It's the kind of the same thing. So it's really difficult to draw systematic conclusions on this stuff, which leads me to believe that even though I agree with Justice Stevens on the law on this thing, I'm not in favor of the repeal of the Second Amendment. I think you overruled two cases and it still has a use. Uh, I just don't think that anything that he wants to do is going to solve the problem. I think he's a dewy-eyed optimist when it comes to the means-ends question. So final question that I'll put to you. Merits of his argument here put to one side. Is it helpful or appropriate for a former Supreme Court justice, someone in John Paul Stevens' position to be weighing in on issues like this and sort of drawing down on the prestige that comes with having been on the court. Yeah, I th I'm perfectly comfortable with that. I think it's a terrible mistake for any sitting justice to try to take a position extrajudicially about what's going on in particular cases. Um, and in fact, you know, Justice Scalia, to the extent that even talking about sort of general doctrines like Chevron deference and originalism, I don't think that that's improbable, but I'm not so sure I would want to engage in that if I'm sitting on the court. But afterwards, the man is entitled to speak his mind. He has a certain degree of moral authority. It is clear that at 97, he doesn't quite have the nimbleness that he had even 10 years ago, which is only human. But I have no objection to him doing it. And to the extent that he does the debate, I think people ought to respond. What I would be very uncomfortable about is somebody saying, well, Justice Stevens said it. That ends that. We don't have any further debate. And in fact, the whole problem with respect to this debate is people are so utterly outraged um, about what is going on uh, that they are taking to the streets. And it's not clear that they have an agenda that's going to do any good. And 
so what you need to do is to slow this thing down and to recognize that any great issues on ends are relatively clear and straightforward, but on the choice of remedy, they're anything but that, and you have to slow down and work it through to see if you can come up with something. I don't know all the answers. I don't even know most of the answers. Answers, but what you really want to do is to have people sit down and deliberate, and at least as I understand it, given what Justice Scalia said about the general police power limitations on rifles and other firearms, um, after the Second Amendment is given a little bit of heft, I don't think it poses much wiggle room limitation. The only proposal that would be challenged, as best I can tell, is, and the National Rifle Association is challenging it. Can you raise the age for gun carriage from 18 to 21 when these people are allowed to vote and do all sorts of other civil activities and you already have rules that are designed to pick out liars, previous offenders, and so forth? They claim that it's overbroad. It's going to be a tough tussle. In the current mood, I think it's likely to be upheld. If you had asked me two years ago what would have happened, I think it probably would have come out the other way. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can follow Richard on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. You can read his weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org. And you can help us out by rating the show on iTunes. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.